I love faith stories, testimonies. And uh, in fact, I got files of them in my file cabinet, in e-files. Some of the testimonies that uh, I've gleaned from you folks, especially during our base path class. And uh, this particular file is filled with some that I've just pulled out of publications. And they may tell the story of a person coming out of one religion or another to find Christ. Or maybe coming from no religious background, an atheist who's come to Christ, or somebody that's come from a cult and embraced the truth of Christianity. One person in here said, soccer was my God until I found Christ. And so when you listen to Justin and Akiko's stories, if you're a believer, it, it strengthens our faith to hear these faith stories. It inspires and encourages us. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, these testimonies can really pique our interest and point us to Jesus. And that's the purpose of a testimony. It's ultimately not about us. Uh, it, it involves us but it's our encounter with Christ and results in pointing others to what He has done in our lives. For three weeks, we focused on Paul's three missionary journeys. And we tied our, our faithful missionary journeys into it as well. And uh, talked about how at the end of that third missionary journey, that wasn't the final journey that he would take. I mentioned that he would go to Jerusalem and ultimately on to Rome, and that's what exactly what happened. Uh, he returns after that third journey, goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested there and finally sent to Rome. And along the way, he shares his faith story, his testimony again and again, because it was an opportunity to point people to Christ, to defend the faith. In fact, I think you'll see in Acts chapters 21 and 22 that we'll look at this morning what, uh, what I've set forth, that Paul shows how a testimony is an able defense of the faith. When he addresses a crowd of Jewish people in the temple, we're going to see in this passage, he starts out by saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. The New Testament was written in Koine or common Greek, and the word for defense is apologia. And uh, we think of apology, it comes from such a word. Uh, but Paul was making no apologies about his faith. In the original language, it meant to make an ardent case for, to make a defense for. And uh, I think we're going to see in his testimony some practical principles that should relate to our testimonies. Because Paul, had a unique opportunity to share his story. In fact, he was commissioned personally by Jesus to go and to go ultimately to the Gentiles to tell this story and point people to Christ. But if you're a follower of Christ, you too have a story and you have a unique opportunity to share this story and to point others to Christ. And uh, that's what I want you to see as we look at this passage, some ways that we can use this tool that we've each been given as followers of Christ more effectively. There's an outline in your bulletin. I want to just pull out three principles from these two chapters. Here's the first. If you're intent on reaching unbelievers, there will always be some, even within the faith, who will misunderstand your actions. 
when Paul finished his third missionary journey, he goes back to Antioch. That was always his point of origin in those journeys. But then he goes up to Jerusalem knowing that the Spirit has been telling believers who've told him along the way, he'll probably be arrested up there, but he goes up to Jerusalem anyway. And um, he reports to the church there. Now, by this time, it's 25 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The church is now being led by James and some elders. The apostles have moved on from there. And so he goes and reports to James and the elders what God has been doing on these missionary journeys and tells them about all the thousands of Gentile believers that have come to faith out in, well, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, or over in Greece and Macedonia. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter 21, and it says, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. And so what they told him was that there are four Jewish believers, followers of Christ, who are in the temple even now, and they are going through a Nazarite vow. And what that was in Jewish tradition was where you make a pledge, and for 30 days uh, you're praying, you're fasting, and you're not cutting your hair or shaving. And uh, at the end of that 30-day period, you make a substantial offering. They said, Paul, if you'll join with those guys in the remainder of that Nazarite vow, then the Jews who have followed Christ here in Jerusalem will know there's nothing to this, that you're telling them to abandon the law and the law of Moses and, and all those things. And well, Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles out there that they could be saved apart from the law by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, they had a council. We looked at that in Acts chapter 15 where they agreed there were certain things they would require so they wouldn't offend the Jews in those communities out there. But no, he was preaching salvation by grace through faith. But Paul also said that to the Gentiles I can be as one not under the law because he didn't need to be, but to the Jews whose heritage and tradition and identity was wrapped up in the law of Moses, he could be as under the law with them. In other words, he wasn't telling these Jewish followers of Christ to abandon Moses and the law, to stop circumcising their babies, or to abandon the rituals of Judaism. This was a transitional period, by the way, this book of Acts. And so he said, yeah, in good conscience he could do that. So he goes and he begins to practice the vow and prayer and fasting with those guys, and everything was going okay, until some of the Jews who had come down from Asia Minor saw him in the temple, and they created a riot. They started yelling, come to us, brothers. This guy is preaching against our faith, against our people, against the law of Moses, and not only that, he's brought a Gentile into the temple. That wasn't true. But they had seen Paul in the streets of Jerusalem with a guy named Trophimus, who was from Ephesus, and they assumed that he'd brought him into the temple courts. 
Well, some of you know that uh, the temple itself was surrounded by several courtyards, each one more restrictive as you got to the temple. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles, non-Jews, could come into that courtyard, especially those who were seeking God. And then the next courtyard was the court of women, Jewish women. And uh, only Jewish women and Jews could come into that one. The next one was the court of men. Jewish men uh, and Jews could come into there. And the next one, the priests only could go in. But the historian Josephus tells us that uh, between the court of Gentiles and the court of women, there was a four and a half foot wall surrounding it, and there were signs at entry points. And in fact, those signs have been found by archaeologists, one in 1871, one in 1935. And the inscription read this, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which follows. They took that very seriously. And I thought about how serious we get around here sometimes. I've actually been spotted in the sanctuary with a cup of coffee occasionally. And I've thought, you know, I, I can't wait for the day until there's a sign back there. Anyone entering the sanctuary with a cup of coffee will have himself to blame for his death. So it hasn't gotten that bad. But uh, in fact, it was a lot more serious here, okay? Well, what happened when they started yelling that out, a mob formed and they dragged Paul out of the temple courts and began to beat him, and the doors were shut to the temple. Luke continues and says, While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Herod the Great had built a fortress up above the temple so that the Romans could keep an eye on these Jews and what was happening in the temple and quell any unrest or riot that took place. So when they see the riot down there, he sends two centurions, so there's at least 200 soldiers, each one commanded 100, down into that crowd to stop the riot and to rescue Paul. Well, one of the things that happens... If, if we get intent on reaching unbelievers, people are going to misunderstand our intentions and actions. Even the unbelievers here. I mean, they, they were going to be misunderstanding how Paul could relate to the Gentiles and not tell them they're under the law of Moses. There was misunderstanding there. And certainly those be, unbelievers in the temple courts didn't understand him, why he would follow Christ and what he was saying. And it's the same today. If we are serious about reaching unbelievers, we're often going to be misunderstood, and sometimes by even those within the church. I mean, Jesus himself was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he engaged with them. I could tell you a lot of stories. I'll mention just a couple. I've got a friend who spent many years in Japan, and while he was there, he was really interested in reaching unbelievers. He was working uh, a secular job, but uh, he would build relationships, and uh, he'd go drink a, a few beers with those guys, 
and uh, share the gospel with him as he had opportunity. He knew some missionaries there as well, and uh, he said, boy, they just continually uh, harangued and criticized him for his willingness to drink a beer when he talked with those guys. But he said after many years when he left Japan, he actually led a number of them to Christ, and to his knowledge, the missionaries hadn't led anyone to Christ. He had been criticized and misunderstood, I really believe. I'll tell you another story. Jim Daly became the president of Focus on the Family back in 2005. And uh, when he assumed that position, he received a letter from a leading gay activist in Colorado inviting him to have lunch with him. Well, that wasn't going to be the top of his agenda, so he set that note aside and, and moved it around. And he said he didn't know if it was a cleaning lady or what, but it kept appearing right there on his desk. And he said, finally, I had to deal with it. And I picked up the phone. I felt the Lord was prompting me and uh, made an appointment. And we had lunch and a really meaningful conversation. But he said, you wouldn't believe the firestorm of criticism I received from Christians for meeting with him. And he later said, you know, we in the church are often either attacking those who are outside the faith or we're withdrawing from them so that we're comfortable in our houses of worship, but we don't have to engage them. But he said the key is engagement. We need to build relationships with unbelievers, even if sometimes they won't understand us. We should never compromise our convictions. And one person can do something that others can't do, but we have to look at our own conscience, look at Scripture, but realize we need to engage unbelievers if we're going to reach them, uh, even if there will be criticism or will be misunderstood. Uh, second principle is, if you're intent on reaching unbelievers, you've got to take the initiative. Sharing your faith, even when it's not comfortable to do so. See the picture here. Paul has been rescued by these soldiers from that mob that were trying to kill him, and uh, dragged up the steps, and on the way up the steps... In the midst of all the uproar, he turns to the commander and says in fluent and dignified Greek, may I say something to you? Well, that stunned that guy. He said, you speak Greek? He said, yes. And he said, so you're not the Egyptian that took a bunch of Jews out into the desert and caused a rebellion some years ago? He said, oh, no. He said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you... Allow me to speak to the people. Wow. Thought about that. I thought, man, they were trying to kill him. And uh, they were all enraged at him and everything. What would I have done in that circumstance? I mean, if, if these soldiers probably weren't treating him too lightly either. But here he is, and he asked that question. I thought, what, what question would I, would I have asked? Looking down at those hostile people down there. I might have said, uh, when we get to the barracks... Will I be allowed to eat with the soldiers in the cafeteria? Or something like that. But not, can I speak to these people? But that's the question he asked because he cared about them. Because he was intent on sharing the gospel with them. And so it says, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, that would have been Aramaic, 
saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. I want you to notice in Paul's story, which is going to come out now, that he is finding common ground with these unbelievers. From the beginning and throughout, he's connecting with them. Brethren and fathers, he says, as term of respect to them, speaking in the dialect that they would have been most familiar with. He could have chosen several languages. But his testimony, as all testimonies, would have three parts to it. Before I came to Christ, this is what I believed, and, and this is how I behaved, and this is how I found Christ. And uh, since I've come to Christ, these are the changes in my beliefs and my behaviors, the differences he's making in my life. So he launches into part one, before I came to Christ. They became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So in addition to his birth and his upbringing, he mentions the fact that he'd been a student of Gamaliel, who was the most respected rabbi in the first century. He's connecting with him. He, just like you guys are zealous, I was too. I persecuted this way, that would be the Christian sect, as it was known, to the death, binding and putting men, both men and women, into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them... I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. That was the before. Now he comes to how I came to Christ, second part. But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, and he continues to tell the story how a bright light shone and he was knocked to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, I said, Lord, who are you? And the voice said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He said, I said, well, Lord, what shall I do? And I was given instructions that I was to go into Damascus and there would be a follower of the way there who would tell me what I was to do. But he said, I was blinded by the light. I had to be led by the hand into Damascus. And sure enough, Ananias, a disciple, a Jewish believer, came and told me that God had chosen me to go and to tell this message and uh, that uh, I was to follow him. And he said, then Ananias said to me, what are you waiting for, Saul? Arise, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. So he told him this story, and that was, part two, was his aha moment. That's when he realized, aha, I have been going the wrong direction. I've believed the wrong things about Jesus and about myself. He thought he was really Mr. Righteous, and he realized in a flash that he needed a Savior. I mention that because... Every believer, every follower of Jesus has had to have had some aha moment along the way. Usually we'll have several. But there's a time when we realize, 
I need a Savior because I have fallen way short of the glory of God. I've been consumed with myself. I've been focused on my goodness, whatever. And now I realize I need a Savior. Sometimes I'll talk to people, uh, typically in a premarital counseling session, for instance, and, and ask them to tell me about their spiritual pilgrimage or just in engaging unbelievers. And sometimes people will tell me, I guess I've always been a Christian. And my first thought is, no, you can't have always been a Christian. And then we'll talk about it. And uh, I'll explain to them, you know, until you really meet Jesus, until you know that I need a Savior, there had to be a point at which you realized that and you realize I'm going the wrong direction. I've believed the wrong things. I've put my faith in the wrong thing for salvation. That's what Paul had. That's what every follower of Christ has had to have had to gain salvation. And so he moves on then to the third part. Since I received Christ. He says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Now at that point, the crowd's getting nervous below him because some of them remembered when Stephen had been stoned. They considered him an infidel. They considered him a traitor because he'd put his faith in Jesus. And now Paul's saying that uh, he's being told by Jesus that uh, uh, he needs to follow him. And he's saying, I was there when your witness, Stephen, was being slain. Now they're feeling guilty and nervous and angry down there. And then he says this. And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You're going to see their response in just a moment. You can anticipate it. But I just want to make the point here that uh, not only will you be misunderstood by believers and unbelievers if you're intent on reaching the lost, but that you've got to take the initiative and any opportunity you have to share the gospel and your story. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Think of it. Was this the perfect opportunity for Paul to preach that message? I mean, he's beaten. He's on the steps in the grips of the soldiers. He's got chains on his wrists. And uh, he took it. It was an opportunity. He took the initiative. It wasn't comfortable, but he did it. Also, don't wait until someone asks you to share your story. Earn the right and then share it. I mean, we'd all love it, and I've heard stories like this, where a person says to a believer, wow, there's just something different about you. What is it? Tell me about it. Wouldn't that be great? Well, if so, tell them your story. But don't wait. Don't wait for that. Instead, build a relationship. Um, hear their story. Listen to where that person's at. Understand and care about that person. And then you'll have, in a natural way, an opportunity to share your relationship. doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable to do so. 
gosh, you might risk the relationship, right? No, but share it. Take the initiative, even if it's not comfortable, and just trust God with that. That's the second practical thing I think we learned from his testimony. Here's the third. If you're intent on reaching unbelievers, don't measure your success by the response of your audience. Paul's coming to the conclusion of his story here, and he says, And Jesus told me that I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And in verse 21 it says, They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So they drag him on up into the barracks, he is to be flogged. The commander wants interrogation through torture. And uh, Paul is stretched out. And by the way, um, he said in another place where he shared his story that five times he had received 39 lashes, that three times he had been beaten with rods. Those weren't pleasant experiences. He had a difficult life as a missionary. But this was far worse. This scourging that he was about to undergo was what Jesus received before he was crucified, where they would have the leather straps with pieces of bone or metal on the end and uh, flay your back until the muscles were gone. It was just a bloody mess. Uh, many people wouldn't survive that. And so he was about to be scourged, and he turned to the commander, and he said, Is it lawful to scourge a Roman citizen who's not been condemned? Whoa, that got his attention because it was against the law to do so. And through further inquiry, they determined this guy is a Roman citizen. And we'll pick up that next week as the saga continues. But the question I want to ask you just for a moment is, was Paul successful then in his witness? Because when you see what happened as he was preaching and telling his story from the steps, it says that they just went into a frenzy and they, a riot ensued and there's no indication in Scripture that Paul concluded his message there with an invitation, that he had an altar call, that he even said to the people, please bow your heads and close your eyes and led them in a prayer and said, now raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. I see that hand over in the far part of the court. No, he didn't do that. So did he fail in his witness? No, he succeeded because he took the initiative to share his story and point people to Jesus even when it was uncomfortable to do so, trusting that God would use that. And I'm sure and I'm confident that he did in the hearts of some of those who heard him. Several years ago, Dr. Bill Bright set forth what I think is an exceptional definition of successful witnessing. He said it's simply taking the initiative to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting, leaving the results to God. That's successful witnessing. And that's what you and I have been called to do. And as I close this message, encouraging you to share your story with others, I want you to know I've made some assumptions as I encourage you to do that. Number one, that you have three parts to your story. Uh, that you 
had an encounter with Jesus, you've come to know him, and that now you're attempting to live for him. Because if we said a prayer at one point or did something religious and maybe even met Jesus, but now we're living for ourselves, we'd have no desire to reach unbelievers. But if we're living for Christ, if we're seeking to do his will, well, that would be to reach lost people because that's the heart of the Savior. We'll be praying for lost people around us in our families and in our workplaces and in our community. We'll be reaching out to them. We'll, we'll do what we can to reach them and we'll have something to tell them. Not only have I encountered Christ and found his forgiveness, but he's changing my life. I'm not there yet. I'm in process, but this is what he's doing in my life. And so those are my assumptions as I encourage you to share your story. We need to be living the story that he's making of our lives if we're going to be effective witnesses. And if you're not yet there, if you haven't had that encounter, I pray this is the day that you'll say, Aha, I need a Savior because I've fallen so short of his grace. He has a story for each of us, and he'll write it if we'll cooperate with him. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the story that is happening in each of our lives. That it's not just our story, but you're involved in it. And as we see your hand writing that story, we realize you've given us a pen as well. That we get to write in this story, and I pray we'll write it in, re in response to your love, and your mercy towards us. So Lord, speak to our hearts in these moments and in days coming and show us how we can live out this story and share this story and point others to you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.